finally made our way to the New Testament, just in time for the Christmas season, uh, which is wonderful. And we have a screen. This is great. Um, so tonight we are in our part of the overview called the present kingdom. We've been working our way um, through each of these, looking at how do we take the Bible and get the overall trajectory, the overall storyline. If you've been here for any number of the weeks or all of them, that's been the theme that we're pursuing. And the model we're using for that is the kingdom of God. And that being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, we've brought in the element of that, including God's king, the Messiah. Um, so we are now at the present kingdom. We've been working our way through uh, this model, if you will. Let me get the rest of that on there. This is what we worked through um, last week, if you remember. That we've been coming through uh, this idea of the pattern of the kingdom in Genesis, how that perished also in Genesis, how God reversed, planned to reverse that through the promised kingdom through Abraham. We see that kingdom partially coming in the history of Israel. We went through all of this. We also see how that led to their disobedience, led to exile and a return in the post-exile period. Um, but in all those things, we saw the voice of the prophets with the idea of the prophesied kingdom. This idea that there would be an element of fulfillment of God's kingdom coming uh, that was greater and more significant than anything that had come to that point. Where we left off last week at the end of the exile as we went through this timeline of the exile with the last prophet of Malachi. If you remember, someone came up to me afterwards and said, what was this blank on the page? If you were here last week, there was one that was intentionally left blank. And it was this idea that with that last prophet, there was 400 years of silence before we come to where we are tonight uh, with the arrival of Jesus. And so, if you remember, there was this hope that Sam had uh, shared with us that the prophets gave. They had this basic two-part message of God's judgment upon sin, but then also of hope. Hope of restoration, hope of redemption, not only for them returning to the land, but that was, if you will, a motif, a model from which to understand how God would bring deliverance uh, to the world through his chosen king. If you remember, when we finished last time, we saw how there was a remnant who had returned from exile in Babylon. Um, they had kind of renewed their hearts around the Mosaic law. They were back in the land of Canaan, but they were lacking a king. And tonight what we're going to look at, um, what should get our Bible overview ears peaked, I hope, as we come to this uh, passage tonight. Um, I'll, I'll just put this verse up. And hopefully, reading this verse now, in light of everything we've gone through for the past, I think this is week 11. I'm not quite sure. I put week 11 on your sheet. I think that's right. It doesn't really matter. You're here and you're going to listen anyway, right? No matter what the number is. But listen to what, how Matthew starts his gospel when he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Also terminology for the king. After 400 years of silence, the first words that encounter us in the New Testament is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all these things should be like with all you now people who have absorbed this Bible overview, you should be thinking, 
whoa, this is, this is sending all kinds of alerts to my brain about what's happening. Because normally we come to these genealogies, sometimes around Christmas time we read these, but these genealogies don't really stimulate us very much. But if we come to this tonight thinking how God has a plan to bring his kingdom into this world, all of these things should be alerting us to that. His promises to Abraham, his promise, remember the covenants we've talked about, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, how God would send a king and he would establish uh, David's uh, line as the one through whom his rulers would come. And so when we come to this tonight, we concluded last time, looking a little bit at the voice of the prophets, how they predicted from Malachi and Isaiah, these two passages right here. Mark, Mark records in the beginning of his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So all of this at the outset is calling us to consider what we're going to read about Jesus as we come to the Gospels. We're going to talk about the Gospels tonight, um, but we're also going to talk about how all of these threads now, what these verses that I've just shared are trying to get us to see is again, at the outset, we said how this entire overview is to give us the big picture of the Bible, the big story, all of which points to Jesus. And Jesus as King and Redeemer, the main subject of the Bible and the theme, this whole idea of the kingdom of God coming through him. That we're going to use that reality then to say, then how do we understand the whole story of Scripture now uh, going not only backwards, but forwards in the next few weeks as we come to the end of this. Because if you remember, we've been talking about this idea of the Old and New Testament being one of promise and fulfillment. And we have been talking for many weeks now about the promise of it coming. And what a wonderful coincidence of time <laughs> that we are talking about how that kingdom came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ right as we're on the cusp of the Christmas season. So this will coincide and hopefully help start preparing our hearts for Christmas. Um, we're going to look tonight at the fulfillment, ultimately the idea that the fulfillment is all found in Jesus. That the kingdom of God finds its ultimate and fullest expression in Jesus. The whole idea of God's people, God's place, God's rule and his blessing and God's king, all of, whom, all of which find their fulfillment in Jesus. I want to share with you just a quote from the book, um, one of the books that I referenced at the beginning of this. Um, there is a book, God's Big Picture, which obviously we pinched the title from for this series, but the, there's a large amount of material from that book I've mentioned based on a book by a man named Graham Goldsworthy called Gospel and Kingdom, and he says this, in terms of us understanding now this idea of the kingdom coming to its fulfillment in Jesus, that each kingdom expression that we've looked at, so Eden was the pattern of the kingdom. Israel was that partial fulfillment of the kingdom. The prophetic kingdom, what we saw in the promises of hope that came in the prophets looking forward. And now 
in the gospel, they all represent the same reality, but each expresses that reality in a different yet related way. The New Testament says that the reality is in the gospel, in Christ himself. Christ is the fulfillment of all the the terms, the, the images, the promises, the foreshadowings in the Old Testament. For the New Testament, the interpretation of the Old Testament is not always literal, but Christological. There's a word you use all the time. Actually, we heard it this morning. I was so happy that Mike in his message mentioned Christology. I'm like, good, I don't have to break that ice. But all that simply is, is you know that. It's not a very fancy word. Ology is the study of Christ. Christology, it's something we're looking at, something from the perspective of what it means from the perspective of Jesus. And so we look at all of the Old Testament and the promises of the kingdom that came in the Old Testament of, of land and descendants and all these other things. And they, they are related in their fulfillment as we come to the new, as we'll see, but they are distinct and and exceedingly better in and through Jesus. We'll see as he continues, that's not the button I wanted, there we go, that the coming of the Christ transforms all the kingdom terms of the Old Testament into gospel reality. That the coming of the king and the one through whom all the promises find their fulfillment, that that is the position from which we then look at all of scripture to bring the pieces of the story together. To think about this, think of some of the things we've shared on Sunday morning in the Gospel of Mark. We went through um, this year a series in the Gospel of Mark, which started off with these words as we think about everything finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, which was what? The time has come. What time? (laughs) Times of fulfillment. He said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. At the outset of this study, we we talked about how everything ultimately is going to find its fulfillment and point to Jesus. And Jesus himself, not only what the gospel writers write about him, but what Jesus himself says about himself in the gospels reflects that. Perhaps you remember these verses where we talked about how there's really one story of Scripture and how it all points to Jesus. We mentioned these early on in our study, how Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. After he died and had been resurrected, he was walking with two disciples, you remember, and they were discouraged over the events of his death and burial, his crucifixion, and he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, the King, the one you've been anticipating, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So everything that had preceded, everything we've been walking our way through and developing this expanding understanding of this coming of the kingdom of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Now over the next few weeks, we're going to see how that even that fulfillment is here and not quite yet and it's coming in its fullness and we'll walk through that. But tonight, we can celebrate that it's here. <laughs> it's present. 
as Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. And the response is what's essential for us. It's not just a fact. It's not just a nice religious thought for us to consider. It's a reality that Jesus is the king and, and we must respond to him. So, again, we're pointing to Jesus all through this. So we're asking ourselves the question tonight with our remaining time, how does Jesus fulfill, as I said earlier, all aspects of the kingdom of God? How does Jesus in his life, in his death, burial, and resurrection, how does, how does the person of Jesus Christ fulfill all aspects of the kingdom of God, of God's people, in God's place, living under God's rule, and under God's blessing. And we're going, to we're going to try to demonstrate, I'm going to try to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills all of these in his life. So he fulfills the idea of the kingdom of God being God's people. How so? Well, interestingly, these somewhat correlate with the previous iterations of the, of the kingdom that we've looked at. The partial kingdom. Who are God's people in the partial kingdom? Who remembers? Partial, I mean, I'm sorry, not partial kingdom. Pattern of the kingdom. First, first two people. It's not a trick question. Yes, Adam and Eve. Yes, Adam and Eve. So Adam, and we look at Adam, and Adam, obviously, in his uh, experience of the kingdom, the kingdom of God perished. God's people in God's place. Adam and Eve in the garden under God's rule and blessing that perished because of their failure and their sin. Scripture looks at Jesus as the true Adam, the faithful Adam. Open your Bibles, if you have one, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And what I'm hoping to do now is by helping you see the overall story of the Bible, the trajectory of the Bible, is to see this passage tonight not simply on its own, but in the context of the whole of Scripture and what it's trying to communicate here. You may be familiar with this um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Now, um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, uh, Jesus goes off into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And hopefully, as we read through this, you can see the, the correlations of, of how this comes back to the Garden of Eden with, with Adam. And so the, the devil tempts Jesus three times. Once, you know, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he says to him, you know, if you're the son of God, you can turn these stones into bread and, and feed yourself. And then he says after that, uh, if you look at verse, um, and Jesus replies to him, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And then the devil takes him up to a high place and tells him, all this can be yours if you will bow down and worship me. And he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then he takes him to a high point in the temple and he says, throw yourself down. And he uses scripture out of context saying, the Lord will command his angels concerning you, uh, in verse 10, to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it is... It says, do not put the Lord, your God, uh, to the test. He is the, the true Adam in that Jesus, um, sorry, I don't want to go to that one yet. He's the true Adam in the sense of as Adam failed in the garden. If we go back to the garden, perfect environment, um, 
where people could experience perfect relationship with God and with one another, and there was really one rule, right? There was the one rule of do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That was, that was the one rule. And with that one, even so, we see the failure of Adam to remain faithful to God, sending in the, per- the kingdom of God perishing. The contrast we have here with Jesus is you have Jesus in the wilderness. Not only is he in the wilderness, but he has fasted for 40 days. And we see, we're going to see in these um, temptations that the, the enemy brings his way, that he responds in a way that demonstrates his faithfulness to God and his, his faithfulness in bringing in the kingdom of God. We're going to look at some verses in relation to that. We're also going to look into this idea of Jesus being the seed of Abraham. Do you remember how the promise after the perished kingdom came to Abraham and God said to Abraham that through his descendants all nations of the world would be blessed? We're going to see how that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's just look first at some verses that talk about Jesus being this idea of the, the true Adam. This is Romans uh, chapter 5 verses 17 to 19. It says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So again, here's the contrast, the death that came through Adam versus the life that comes through Jesus Christ. And this is possible because of his obedience in the wilderness, contrasting with Adam's disobedience in Eden. And so it says in this, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also the one righteous act just is, uh, resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through diso- the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus is the true Adam. He is also um, the seed of Abraham. I'm having some trouble with my computer here. Forgive me. Yes, the seed of Abraham. We were going to walk through those temptations a little bit more, but for the sake of time, I think we'll press on. Um, Jesus, in his response, by the way, just for your benefit, if you go back and look in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, Every single one of Jesus' response to the devil in there comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. Again, Israel coming out of the wilderness and Jesus demonstrating that he is faithful. We'll come to that actually in just a little bit. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there. Sometimes I lose myself in my notes, so you're just going to have to forgive me. We'll come back to it actually in, in just a moment here. So... The promises is talking about Jesus being the seed of Abraham. So you remember, we have this picture up here, that the Lord came to Abram and promised that through him and through his seed, through his descendants, all nations of the world would be blessed. In Galatians chapter 3, it says that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And so what is Paul doing here? He's not being cutesy with language and getting like really like argumentative on just some semantics. 
He's trying to draw a point that the fulfillment of the kingdom promises come through Jesus as the seed of Abraham. And why that's important is that anyone who can be associated with him can also come through and experience the blessings of being related to him. So it says this later on in that same passage. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham finds its fulfillment in Christ and those connected with him through faith in this verse. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, here is the key, then you are Abraham's seed as well. So it's so vital to understand this idea that with the one seed, Jesus, being the true seed of Abraham, through whom the, the fulfillment of the promises will come, our association and connection and being put in Christ allows us to experience those blessings. He's the one seed. We become that seed through our faith in him, the true seed. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This is where I got ahead of myself earlier. I'm going to go there now about Jesus being the true Israel. The true Israel. So the responses to the temptation in the wilderness that I was mentioning earlier come from Deuteronomy and correlate to Israel's wilderness experience there. We mentioned them earlier. Hopefully you're still in Luke chapter 4. If you're not, go ahead and turn back there. But if you remember, we went through them where the enemy, the devil, told him, tempted him to turn the stones to bread, uh, to worship Satan, and to jump from the temple. And that the Lord, to throw himself from the temple and that the Lord would rescue him. Now all of these things again, the responses that Jesus gives come from the Old Testament. And the reason I'm referencing these things now is to again to try to help us see how the thread brings us forward from the old into the new. To associate Jesus with Israel in the past but to show how he is faithful and fulfills what they failed to in the partial kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay, so the responses here in Deuteronomy that Jesus gives when he says man shall not live by bread alone comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 where it says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, remember he was tempted 40 days, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, the point being made here, he is the true Israel. He is remaining faithful under temptation in contrast to the failings of the nation of Israel after leaving Egypt. Remember, they came to the edge of the promised land, and they failed to enter it because they had rebelled against God. They were meant to be a kingdom of priests. Remember God says he rescued them, he redeemed them in Exodus chapter 20. 
When we looked at how they became this partial kingdom, he says you're to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. They were meant to represent God to the world and they failed in that. What they failed to do, Jesus brings fulfillment to. When he was, um, when he said to, to throw yourself down from the heights of the temple, um, Jesus quoted this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. I don't know if you, if you know what Jesus is referring to here, but it's Exodus chapter 17. While the, the people had been delivered and in Exodus chapter uh, 17 they're wandering and they don't have water and they complain and they quarrel and they're basically... They, they, they are quarreling with Moses and ultimately the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses to strike a rock and water flows from it. And essentially they quarreled. If you look at, I'm going to turn in Exodus chapter 17. If you want to, please feel free. Um, but I want to reference something there for you. It says this in verse 6. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, Massah meaning testing, Meribah meaning quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? No, what an ironic question to then come fast-forwarding to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness with this idea of, is the Lord among us or not? Obviously, he was God the flesh standing right there. And so Jesus, again, was faithful where Israel had failed and had quarreled. And then finally, where Satan tempted to worship him in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, he says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, take your oaths in his name. Do not follow the other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. What are all these things trying to do? Why have I gone through all these things? To show you how in the overall picture of things, what the writers of scripture are trying to demonstrate is that Jesus fulfills that category of God's people completely, faithfully, without fail. Why did the kingdom fail in the Old Testament? <laughs> because of us. <laughs> because we were weak in our sin and in our choices. And remember, God, at the promise he gave to Abraham, basically verified at that covenant um, ceremony that the promise of the blessing and the reversal of the curse would be dependent upon him. And he did that in the sending of his son, and the kingdom being present among us. So the writers of scripture take again these categories that were the Old Testament categories and places them on Jesus. One verse we sometimes hear at, at Christmas time comes from um, Matthew where it talks about how Jesus and his family fled to Egypt because they heard about how Herod was killing all the babies. And then when he returned, the, uh, Matthew writes that this was a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So it's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you look in the Old Testament, this is about God bringing the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So why is Matthew 
taking this verse and kind of co-opting it and saying this actually applies to Jesus and what happened in Jesus is a fulfillment of this. It's not that it was like some sort of code language earlier that this is really wink wink talking about, <laughs> talking about Jesus. But what it's saying is, is that all these categories and images of deliverance and redemption and God reversing the curse actually find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And he's deliberately connecting Jesus to this to reinforce that idea. Why? Because in Matthew's thinking, and this is where if we put our minds to what the overall trajectory of Scripture is, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the fulfillment and he is the faithful one in all those things. So he fulfills God's people. All right? So we got that category. He also fulfills God's place. In the Old Testament, where did God meet with his people? Where was God's place in the land of Canaan, then in Jerusalem, in two places? One was temporary, the tabernacle. We spoke about that. And the other was more permanent, the temple, which was destroyed. And then we saw how that was partially, modestly rebuilt. All right? In the exile, post-exile. So we have Jesus now fulfilling this category in being the true temple and the true tabernacle. Again, a verse we have looked at in the past, but bringing back up tonight should make us think again in terms of Christmas as it rolls around. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. When it says he made his dwelling among us is literally in the sense of the language is he pitched his tent. He tabernacled. And the imagery then again there is that this is the place where we, we meet God as they met God in the Old Testament. Jesus is now the place where we meet God. The idea also of him being the temple Jesus, in regards to when he did one of the cleansing of the temple and they questioned his authority, he answered them saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. And so we see in the person of Jesus and the, the life and ministry of Jesus, the shifting of all the kingdom fulfillments onto him. God's people, God's place. He is the temple now where people meet God. The woman at the well. Interesting story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who gets Jesus engages in conversation. And part of their conversation, the woman says to him, I can see that you're a prophet. She says that after Jesus makes some very insightful remarks about her life and moral choices. And she shifts it now to this idea of where's the right place to meet with God? Where's the place that we go to? And she says, our ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, a way of referring to the temple. And Jesus responds, woman, Jesus replies, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And then he says, yet a time is coming and has now come. It's present with the arrival of Jesus, the very one she's talking to. It's there in front of her in the flesh. 
The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For this, these, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So all of these threads, these are like pearls on the string, if you will, of the New Testament in the gospel saying with the arrival of Jesus, he is the temple. He is the tabernacle. He is God's presence among us and it's in his presence that we find God. One more verse here um, where Jesus in John chapter 7 It says that he stands up at a festival, the greatest day of the festival. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then it goes on in verse 38 there. It says, By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when he says the Scriptures, what the Scriptures say, he's referencing something in Ezekiel chapter 47. Um, There's a vision of a temple there. And there's a lot of debate over what this temple actually means. Uh, Personally, I I think its dimensions and its references are are such that it points to something other than just architecture. that I think there is a greater fulfillment as is alluded to here with the Holy Spirit. It goes on and it talks about how from this temple in Ezekiel there are rivers of life that flow to the nations and brings healing and life and all these different things. And so as we come to this passage and Jesus is using that same kind of language that is about a temple that brings life and he's saying come to me that in him that idea of the temple of the place where we meet God is found remember the prophets the prophesied kingdom took the realities of the partial kingdom and projected them forward to days of greater fulfillment and in Jesus referencing this passage in Ezekiel he's saying that time of fulfillment is found in me come to me so this is very personal So he is the place where God's kingdom is experienced. So we have God's people established in Jesus. We have God's place established in Jesus. And then we also have God's rule. Remember, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. How does that come under Jesus? Well, if you remember, we had our discussion about covenants and how important it is to understand how covenants work in the Bible. There were the different covenants we looked at and we said there's one more yet to come through which Jesus fulfills the new covenant that the kingdom of God would finally find its fulfillment under. Those are found, if you want to turn please with me to Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Old Testament. This is just important for us to reference. Actually we're going to look at two passages if we have time, which I think we do. Jeremiah chapter 31 beginning at verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now just reminder, a covenant is kind of like a formal yet relational contract. 
There are obligations to it, but there's also personal elements to it. And the covenant that God entered into with the nation of Israel was he delivered them and he was to be their God and their king and they were to be his people. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. A covenant that, as we read the New Testament, we'll find is superior to the old. And he says, this is the covenant in verse 33 that I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. What is unique about this covenant is it brings in a dynamic whereby what made the past covenants fail, this one will succeed because it brings transformation to the person. It brings forgiveness of all that was the problems of the failures of the Old Testament and it brings transformation of heart to obey. And so Jesus ushers in this new covenant and it's in him that we find our soul's rest. Jesus said to him, to them, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He ushers in that new covenant and that blessing of coming to him to find, to find rest is what we find in his presence. That he is the true king. That he is the one who if we were to think of our categories earlier, let me bring this up. We want to be in a place where the blessings can go to the nations of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing and we've been missing a king to pull all these pieces together and make it happen. And in the arrival of Jesus, as we were just reading, he is that king who brings those pieces together by being the one who establishes and ushers in this new covenant. As we come to the New, new Testament later, we're going to see it's a covenant that is brought into fulfillment through his blood. And so, that in a nutshell, that we're going to start to unpack a little bit in the next few weeks, is how the arrival of Jesus, remember we had 400 years of silence, and with the arrival of Jesus, we have, remember, I think my most powerful image of this is when the shepherds are out watching their flocks at night. I don't know if you remember when we talked about the exile, it talked about how the glory of the Lord left the temple and they went into exile and then they kind of came back from exile, but the temple, the glory really hadn't returned and there's 400 years of silence, there's no glory, there's no God, there's no nothing happening and then the angels arrive on the scene outside in Bethlehem and it says that the glory of the Lord shines all around them and they talk about a king being born and it all coming, pulling together, finding its fulfillment in him. And so as we come to the four gospels, we have this four unique yet related perspectives on how this kingdom comes present. So this is the piece now we're coming to in our overview is the gospels. And so in Matthew, uh, just to give a quick summary of what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how they bring different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've mentioned this before, share 
quite a bit of material. They look very similar. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels. And if they each, though, have a slightly different slant. And so they're looking all at the same event, but from a slightly different perspective and a slightly different agenda. Matthew, if we were to look at it, very much emphasizes Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So as you read through Matthew, you're going to find this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, and this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Earlier this year, I mentioned we went through the Gospel of Mark. What do you find in the Gospel of Mark? You find a very active Jesus. (laughs) He's moving constantly. He is the servant king who suffered dying as a substitute. Remember the question at the front end is, who is this? The answer to that question in the second half we look at, and why did he come? He came to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute. Luke is interesting for us tonight because if you remember, the promised kingdom is the blessing goes to the nations. And in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus interacting with Jews, with Gentiles, with all different kinds of people. And as we see his second volume, it's about the book of Acts, about that gospel going to the nations. And John emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. He was in the, world, in the beginning with God and the world was created through him and he is the author and the giver of life. So it gives this grand kind of cosmic perspective to who Jesus is. Yet all of these are coming together to again create this picture of in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is here. It's not just a subject that we studied in the past, the pages of Scripture. It's not something that we're looking forward to one day, though there's an element to it that we are. It's right now that we can begin, we can enter into it and experience it right now through Jesus because he faithfully is God's people. He is God's place where we can meet God. And under his rule and blessing as our king, we can come into his presence and experience God's rule and blessing. So why does all this matter? It is in this gospel, if you remember. Um, Earlier in this study, I mentioned how the concept of salvation by substitute was introduced. Uh, There's several places. I'm just referencing this one because it feels the most apropos. But when God was delivering and preserving his people in in, uh, the book of Exodus coming out of Egypt, um, you remember the last and final plague where the angel of death was going to come over Egypt that God gave away for there to be salvation by a substitute where the blood of a lamb will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So God made a way for them to have a substitute of a perfect lamb that will be sacrificed and the blood applied to their homes so that they could be saved. What's essential for us understanding how we enter into and experience the kingdom of God is to understand that God still works by salvation by substitute. Our problem is that we are rebels to the rule of God by nature. We still have the same core problem that Adam and Eve did, that Israel did, that the, the, the post-exile Israelites did, that, that all humans have had through all time going back to creation. The reason we can't experience the kingdom of God on our own is it's impossible. 
for us to do so. But through Christ, as we mentioned earlier, the true seed of Abraham, through faith in him, we can enter into that kingdom. When John the Baptist saw Jesus in the Gospels, he said this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's provision for salvation by substitute. And notice it was the salvation of the world. Remember God's promise to Abraham, through you all nations of the world will be blessed. Remember in the partial kingdom leading up to the promise to David that David wanted to build him a house and God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And through that house, there's going to be a, a ruler whose kingdom will never end. And there's this traje trajectory going forward, all these images, all this foreshadowing that now with the coming of Jesus converges. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and it's in Him and our response to Him that we can experience and become a part of the kingdom of God. Our problem has been people say, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. This is saying is, Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Say, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm a rebel by nature, I'm, I'm worse than I could possibly imagine. Yet God in his love sent me his son to die as my substitute. So if I say yes to his rule, if I accept his forgiveness, I can be a part of his kingdom, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I shared this earlier. I thought it would be a good way for us to come to close tonight. The ultimate goal of God's promise to Abraham is the blessing that will prevail over the curse. It does when the seed of Abraham, the singled out descendant of Abraham, Jesus, the Messiah, becomes a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So the kingdom is here. It is present. It is no longer Something that we have to say is, is, is yet to come. The aspects of it will. The present kingdom means God's people is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's rule and blessing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That God's place is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that God's king is Jesus Christ. The one we need to respond to to enter into his kingdom. My prayer has been that these things will help us once again to see the whole big picture of scripture how it all ultimately points to Jesus and how we can see the pieces of this puzzle start fitting together. I always want us to have an opportunity for our hearts to respond. I've put some on the sheet and I'm just gonna mention them now because whatever God is laying on your heart in response to these things, but one is to consider as you go through Christmas and the Advent season to take this information and think about how it helps prepare our hearts, how it helps you in a sense and me think about our response to him during Advent and Christmas. Hopefully seeing the bigger picture makes you see Jesus and God's provision of him for us in a bigger picture. But ultimately what I was alluding to earlier, I felt like it was the most important thing I wanted us to emphasize tonight, is really, maybe you find these things interesting, maybe you don't. I don't know what your response is to my presentation of it. But ultimately, I guess I want to ask, what should your next step be 
in response to the fact that the kingdom of God is present and fulfilled in Jesus and that God says through our response to him, you can actually know him and be a part of his kingdom? What's your response? Have you made that step? Do you know someone else who needs to make that step? Do we really fully appreciate what it means that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near and his call to repent and believe? Let's pray. Father, would you take what we've shared here tonight and Lord, would you help us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament, of your promise to bring your kingdom rule to those who respond to you, who willingly choose to be your people under your rule and blessing. Father, thank you so much that what we could not do, you did for us. The whole history of the Old Testament demonstrates that if the kingdom of God is up to us, it fails. We ultimately see your faithfulness and your goodness in the sending of your son to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, to die as our substitute, to make a way for us to enter in and experience the blessings of your kingdom and your rule. Lord, would you speak to our hearts tonight about what that reality means as we prepare for the Advent season and for Christmas. And as we leave here tonight, Lord, to consider the reality of what's our next steps this week of living under the rule and reign of Jesus. Is it to take that first step of faith? Is it an area of obedience that needs to come under your rule that we might experience your rule and blessing more fully? Is it to share the good news with somebody who needs to hear it? Lord, would you just take our time in your word tonight to lead us that we might um, that we might know you more fully and that we might bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.